Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. With me, Tiasha Zaitz. In today's episode, you're going to hear a recording of a panel discussion titled Upside Down, How AI Changed Healthcare in 2023. In this discussion, which was live streamed, and you can also see the video recording by going to the link in the show notes, we reflected on the developments in the AI space in healthcare in 2023 and what we can expect in the upcoming years. We'll jump straight into this. Enjoy the show. And if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you will like the content, please leave a rating or a review. It really is what keeps the show going and it spreads the word that the show is out there and can reach potential new listeners. So I'm really grateful for everyone that have done that so far. Thank you. Also, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. This discussion will also be summarized there. Now let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Uh, hello, the audience that is following us through the live stream. I'm really happy to be joined today by four esteemed speakers to discuss what's been happening in AI in 2023 and to just wrap up all the discussions, all the developments into a coherent uh, overview of 2023. I would like to give a warm uh, welcome to uh, Shweta Maniar, who is the Global Director for Life Sciences Solutions and Strategy for Google Cloud. In this role, Shweta leads a rapidly growing business within the most strategic and transformational life sciences accounts worldwide. We have Harvey Castro, who is a physician with over 20 years in the medical field and now is focusing on strategic advisory for ChatGPT and healthcare, championing the integration of AI in the modern medical practice. We also have Rachel Dunscombe, the CEO of the Open Air Foundation, the non-executive director at the Digital Health Society, which promotes policies, services, and products focused on health data. And she's also a visiting professor at the Imperial College of London and was the UK government AI council member for five years. And then the uh, last speaker is Kira Radinsky, the CEO and CTO of Diagnostic Robotics, where the most advanced technologies in the field of AI are harnessed to make healthcare better, cheaper, and more widely available. Just before we begin our debate today, I'm going to start with a very brief overview of what has happened in AI in healthcare in 2023. If we just look at uh, the investments in the digital health space, they have been uh, falling for the last two years, as well as the stocks of uh, digital health companies, generally speaking, the atmosphere in the digital health space is a little bit uh, cautious this year. If we look at AI in the FDA database, there's currently around 700 entries of medical devices using AI and machine learning that have already been approved by the FDA. And the first one was approved in 1995, so quite a long 
time ago. The majority of these applications are from radiology, and that's a really high percentage. Um, in 2020, almost 90% of all the approved devices were from radiology and 80% in 2023. When it comes to uh, all these algorithms, the key thing is that they're working on trying to optimize existing solutions, uh, processes, and in that way, improve the accessibility of care. So, for example, this is just one example of an algorithm that's basically shortening the time that it takes to create uh, the full body MRI scan. And with that, uh, you can make more scans and increase the availability of these exams. The interesting thing for me is that basically in 2020, the year-over-year increase of FDA-approved AI-enabled devices was at 39%. That percentage dropped to 14 and 15 in 2021 and 2022, and is around 30% this year. But the real thing this year was really generative AI. ChatGPT was launched on 30th of November last year. It took five days for service to get to 1 million users and one month to get to 100 million users. And there uh, are currently 180 million users using ChatGPT. In healthcare, uh, generative AI has been used even before ChatGPT. The Gallen Growth Report also unveiled very interesting stats that basically only 2% of ventures inside the digital health space, so 2% of those that use AI actually use generative AI. So this is still a very young field. And what has been evident this year, though, is that it's making big waves in note-taking and paperwork. That's where basically the use cases are also the strongest and very useful with the burnout rates that are increasing in healthcare. Other interesting inventions or news that we've seen in 2023, because today we're not just going to talk about generative AI, we are going to talk about AI more broadly, is the forward health uh, care pods, which uh, are being deployed in malls, gyms, and offices, and are planned to basically increase the accessibility of tests of uh, just insight into individuals' health. Another not so positive news this year was the news that United Health used an AI model to basically de- deny rehabilitation care to elderly patients. And the problem there, at least based on the reports that we've seen so far, is more in the fact that basically the decision makers and the medical professionals that were involved in decision making about rehab care had to follow the algorithm and didn't have much of the free space to actually assess the patient individually and really take the algorithm just as a guiding principle. And this is where really the question of regulation and how technologies are used comes up. And this is also something that we're going to very briefly address at the end of this panel. The most known regulation in AI is the EU AI Act, which was already proposed two years ago. There's ongoing discussions happening in 2023. In the U.S., the National Institute of Standards and Technology designed the Voluntary AI Risk Management Framework in January. In October, uh, President Biden 
the, the executive order, which is basically saying that the HHS needs to design a task force by January 28th and a, an AI safety program is supposed to go live by the end of September. So there's a lot going on in the regulation space. There's also the Coalition for Health AI, which is a coalition of notable clinical institutions, research institutions and universities in the U.S. proposing how AI could be legislated in the future. And with that, it's time for us to start our discussion. I would like to start with Harvey. And I want to know a little bit from your perspective and observation, how do you see that basically the clinical perception around AI has changed in 2023? What, for example, do doctors use today that they didn't use last November? Great question. First of all, thank you for everyone on the panel for coming and uh, thanks for having me. Big picture, as I look at AI and healthcare, I, I look at it like a bell curve. We have early adopters, we have those middle adopters, and we have those late adopters. I don't want to overgeneralize, but I feel that there's a certain percentage of people that are using it today that weren't it as far as healthcare. For example, medical students are already using ChatGPT to help them with education. Believe it or not, you can now create summaries of basically anything, YouTube, medical journals, upload, get nice summaries. And then you can take it to the next level. You can actually uh, convert those and medical students are converting those notes and putting them into MP3. And so when they're driving, they're listening to their lecture notes. Other things that I'm seeing now is obviously Microsoft got in bed with OpenAI, and then they also got in bed with an electronic medical record of Epic. And now they really are already showing some summaries of large amount of data from your patients being summarized and then being able to give it to the providers. Other things I know that on the opposite side, I'm seeing some clinicians saying, hey, if this is going to be put in my practice, I'm going to retire early. And so it's really interesting to see the diversity. And the last thing I want to say, I'm really excited about seeing Mayo Clinic and New York Tron and Gator Tron. Basically, they're using the data sets of all these patient interactions and then putting it into a large language model and then creating predictive analytics on how that patient should be. Should they stay in the hospital a little longer? Should they be discharged? So those are quick things for 2023, how I'm seeing the all this AI movement change. Thanks, uh, Harvey. Shweta, what's uh, your perspective from Google Cloud? So Google Cloud is the leading provider in machine learning, AI, and data analytics. And to name just a few concrete examples of uh, the work that you're doing in healthcare. So Huma, the global company that's providing solutions for virtual wards, remote patient monitoring, uh, decentralized clinical trials, and more, is collaborating with uh, Google's generative AI. Then you're working with pharmacy companies like Novartis and Bayer to support them in drug development. Mayo Clinic also announced a collaboration with Google Cloud to improve the clinical workflows. So how would you describe 2023 for Google in terms of your efforts and engagements in healthcare and life sciences? What are some of the most promising use cases that you see that AI is making strides in? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me and being able to spend time with this panel. From a Google perspective, right, we have been in healthcare and life sciences for quite some time. And Google as a whole was founded on this idea that bringing more information to more people can improve lives at a vast scale. So when you now extend that mission to healthcare and life sciences, we want to help people deliver, improve lives by, by enabling healthcare and life science organizations to deliver 
on their promise of a future for a personalized and precision medicine world for the entire ecosystem of healthcare. And so we see that organizations are building solutions on our platform and leveraging Google innovations to transform their organizations so that we can all live healthier lives. A couple of examples would be last year, we announced the medical imaging suite, which is an AI-assisted diagnosis technology that's being used by Hologic to improve cervical cancer diagnoses. And with healthcare systems like Hackensack Meridian Health, they're using the medical imaging suite solution to protect metastasis in patients with prostate cancer. From a life sciences perspective or a pharmaceutical drug discovery perspective, we also announced AI-powered solutions that are accelerating drug discovery. AI has been making a lot of inroads in, in drug discovery for a good part of the last decade. And now we've developed solution suites for early drug discovery or early research with, tar- with our target and lead identification suite or our multi-omic suite pairing our AI or pairing AI with other cutting-edge technology to support these organizations in their aspirations of drug discovery. And why is all of this as important is because it supports precision medicine. And if you're in the healthcare space, any part of the ecosystem, we're seeing this as taking into account the individual variability, the ecosystem, the environment, the lifestyle of each person. And so using technology to understand individual differences can help support organizations as they're looking at how they can deliver more precise and targeted care for their patients. You can use these kind of solutions and platform to improve diagnosis, maybe prevention, personalized treatment plans. And of course, my hope is that we can also use these type of technologies to drive more equity in healthcare. And so we're seeing that this is an opportunity to also level the playing field in terms of access, going back to Google's original original area of focus. And I didn't even mention the generative AI piece where we've introduced a lot of capabilities about understanding images. Harvey spoke a little bit around ambient documentation, speech to text, translations. And these are areas where we're focused on pretty heavily, where we can help the industry develop new solutions. But you don't want to rush this process You really want to get, people are getting very excited about the use of generative AI, but we need to take the right steps with this technology and and be very slow and methodical as time consuming as it may be. You want to focus on keeping the human in the loop as you're developing this technology and doing proof of concepts and start very slow and methodical so that it can be in a sustainable manner where we build, continue to build trust in the system. I would love to hear also from uh, Kira on this note. So Kira, Diagnostic Robotics works globally. You've got clients in the US, Israel, Brazil, South Africa. Maybe you can continue where uh, Shweta left off. And if you can, please also add what kind of differences you're noticing around hospital digitalization, maturity, data governance in these different markets that you're operating in. Definitely. So let's start with each country. There's countries like Israel, where there's almost centralized data centers, uh, where you have all of the data of all of the EMR located in one location. Uh, Having all of the information of all of the patients in a single place allows us to do a lot of stuff around AI. Uh, However, from the priorities of the hospitals and primary care physicians, uh, it's a lot about reducing burnout of those physicians and a lot of navigation. In other words, 
a lot of the problems that we're solving is long waiting times for specialists, long waiting times inside emergency departments. And we're building systems who are learning how to get the right data from patients. In other words, triage the patients and then build AI systems to learn how to best navigate them to reduce the burden in the entire system. Very similar to South Africa, where you have pretty much a single entity that holds most of the information of the country. This is very different if you consider the United States. In the United States, all of the data is spread between numerous organizations. As a primary care physician, it's very hard for you to see the information about your own patients if they actually go to another healthcare system. There's a lot of ways of solving this right now. You see the health plans are being involved, trying to send claims data, trying to obtain EMR data and then send it. But there is no involvement from a centralized entity saying we have to have the entire entity and data in a single place. There was a lot of developments with the healthcare information exchanges where on a state level they said, oh, no, we need the EMR data in one location because this will enable additional analysis. However, if you look at the focus in the United States, it's less about physician burnout because it's a very, I don't want to say capitalist approach to that one, but it's different incentive package than you see outside the United States. And a lot of the focus I see right now is to the move to value-based care. As a background uh, to our listeners, as compared to outside the United States, there's a move to get physicians to be paid a single amount, we call it usually capitation, and then they start having incentives to make their patients healthy. In other words, if they're healthy, you make more money. Very simple. Now, this requires a lot of AI because usually a primary care physician would have 2,000 to 5,000 that have seen pretty much all of the spectrum patients, and you cannot monitor all of them, nor do you even have the data. Usually you're a primary care physician, you're completely disconnected from what happens with your patient outside of your organization. So the incentives are aligned, and here comes AI. How can I allow you to identify patients who are deteriorating so you can study interventions before they become sick. And this is a classic AI problem. So we'll obtain more than 60 billion historical claims, almost 100 million medical records, and still building AI systems to identify those patterns. Now, you have the incentive from the healthcare system to start obtaining those, but this requires a lot of change management because they're not selecting between what you're doing and other competition, but mostly between what you're doing and pretty much doing nothing. But I think here, it's the first time I've seen that AI plays a critical role because they have no other way of doing this because of the way the incentives were designed. If you look at the last 20 years and how physicians in the United States were incentivized, it moves from fee-for-service, in other words, you have incentives for patients to be sick and meeting you, to this move to value-based care where it started from just document what you do with the patients. Don't do anything else, just document that. Get data. So after 15 years of getting data, I think this is the first two years when you started seeing a shift where physicians are only going to be incentivized if the patients are healthy and not only based on documentation. In other words, it is ripe for an AI intervention. Thank you, Kira. You actually got me wondering when you say we've been gathering data for the last uh, 15 years, my first thought was what is the actual quality of that data when we know that clinicians are often overburdened, when we know that they often have to do notes even after hours, that they copy paste things, that patients see that there's errors in their medical records and they they can't even uh, change them. So maybe just a very quick comment on that. And then Rachel, I'm sure you're going to have a lot to, to say on that topic. 
All right. So let's talk outside the United States, inside the United States. Outside the United States, I, I, I hear you, right? The quality of the data is different because you're not being incentivized by building the best medical summary in the world. Therefore, if you ask me what type of solutions we build outside the United States, is automating this medical summaries. Physicians need to be less burnout, have an AI system do it. And this is a very generative AI application. Very successful. We're, we're managing to reduce 30% of the time physicians spend on all of those administrative staff by interviewing the patient, writing the summary, navigating them, making sure they have the right tests inside the United States. The last 15 years, they were incentivized. They actually get money for doing documentations correctly. Okay, so everything was around just do documentation correctly. And I think this is very lucky because now you have high quality data. Can it be improved? Of course. <laughs> Can you be combined in a single location? Definitely. But the steps are in the right directions because there's financial incentives around it. Mm -hmm. um, Rachel, a question for you. Maybe just very briefly observations that you see on different markets. Let's start with that and we'll then move to the question around data quality. Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting because picking up on the point that Kira made about Israel, Israel's really lucky. It has a unified architecture and a unified way of gathering its data. And certainly I've worked with the system that they use there. We deployed it in the UK as there's a different baseline in each country. But I'd like to come back to some of the points actually that have been made. I think from Harvey that there is a, a big piece around education here because we're not going to change clinical practice. We're not going to change policy unless people understand how important the data is that feeds AI and educating our clinicians, educating in our medical schools, ed educating our policymakers is absolutely key to this. And as Rita talked about not rushing, this is a journey that needs governance. It needs policy. And it needs to be linked back to the data. And so we have different baselines across the world that nowhere is perfect. But it's really interesting. A piece of research back from 2022 from Bernstein et al. in the Journal of American Informatics Association, which showed that between different systems that we use different EMRs, there is only 22% of true interoperability or equivalence of data. And in a world where you're trying to run environments where you have multiple vendors, EMR vendors, system vendors, vendors for patient reported outcomes, we have got a problem. We've got a, a data legacy problem, a technical debt that we've built in where we have far too many data models. Blood pressure, for instance, in the UK is recorded in hundreds of different formats. And so from my perspective, really, we need the foundations to be right. Part of this, not rushing it, is about making sure we have the right data foundations. And that really is about data models that represent the human condition. We have far too much variance. So I did a diagnostic with Carnegie Mellon University a couple of years ago using something called Viable Systems Model to look at um, where we had a problem because it was really bugging me that we couldn't make more progress in healthcare as a former CIO that used to manage regional hospitals and community data. And it came out with the, the fact that we have gross and warranted variation in data and it is unwarranted variation in data. And unwarranted variation in data causes unwarranted variation in outcomes, as we know. So for me, really, we need to get our data in order. Data in some countries is now a capital asset, like bricks and mortar. It's got a, an asset life of decades. It is the new venue of care. So it's the elastic walls of the hospital for the new care that we'll deliver in or near the home. And we really need to take a strategic look at data globally because it is what we feed AI and AI's performance will be directly proportional to, to, to the data it's fed. So for me, actually, there needs to be big policy initiatives. And as Kira said, we need to look at this 
at a national level, we need policy to ensure that we're converging on standardized data to enable a cognitive age, basically. I want to uh, add to that another question when it, around the data structure, because obviously generative AI, which is to a large degree at the moment used for structuring data, it can't just automatically solve the integration issues between right. different systems, but it is used for data structuring. So maybe can you give us a brief comment on w where do you see the role of data standards? in the era of generative AI, and I'm hoping Kira is going to be able to respond to it. But Rachel, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because I work on standards. I'm working with other standards bodies, and I think generative AI has got a role in being part of the deciding, proposing, peer reviewing of data structures for the future. I think that is absolutely logical. And I'm super excited to use generative AI on a daily basis and involved in a number of projects. But what it's really good at is pulling together knowledge and evidence bases and actually contributing to our decision-making. So for me, it's just going to add power to us getting the data right. Mm -hmm. Kira, we discussed also earlier the whole challenges around the data quality. In the beginning, in the introduction, I mentioned the challenges with outputs that AI algorithms can have when it comes to rec recommendations. So where do you see that the future development of AI is going to go and what measures need to be put in place to basically improve accuracy? Awesome. First of all, I'm going to side with uh, Rachel. I've been seeing a lot on the generative AI as a summary. Okay. Just to give you an example, right? Utilization management. A very basic task a lot of peers are doing. For the listeners here who are not in the field of uh, peers in the United States, think about a nurse, usually, that needs to review a lot of different materials to know if she should approve or not this for a specific medical treatment based on certain guidelines. Again, very general. Think about the amount of time it takes. This is exactly where generative AI can at least, first of all, summarize the information and highlight the most important pieces. Again, we could have done this before with machine learning, like classic machine learning, giving you probability, should it be approved or not? But they need evidence. Think about a police officer, a detective, that he identified somebody for a crime they didn't do yet. And he needs something to summarize it and say, oh, what are the evidence for this one? In healthcare, we need this a lot. However, beyond just utilization management, who are actually trying to do with physicians and get to a point where, oh, no, this is the diagnosis of the patient, the holy grail, that doesn't work. In general, physicians like doing diagnosis and doing things they like instead of them doing it is not something that's easily done in a, in a commercial way. What we did find is summarizing a medical summary for a physician to make their work more efficient. In other words, oh, I have a lot of claims and medical records about this patient. I have five minutes with this patient right now on the phone or in a meeting. Can you summarize what I need to do with the patient and the evidence behind it? This one also worked well for us. Now, this is the numbers I just mentioned that when we were doing this, we had a high collaboration with several institutions in the United States healthcare systems and were able to increase by 20% the number of patients they're taking by automating using the different generative AI techniques I just mentioned just because of summarizing the medical summaries and automating some of the flow, okay? When I say automating some of the flow is deciding what's the next task to do with the patient, which physician. However, metrics. When we only started, we started using this almost as a decision support system for care management. We're doing preventive calls. A care manager would call a patient before something wrong happens and try to convince them to do a flu shot, try to convince them to meet their physician. Very hard. 
So what we started doing is building systems who take all of the information about this patient and give you talking points to tell you what to say during the conversation to convince them. Also very nice. When we try to do it automatically, it's not the same touch, right? So we're doing this automatically for some of this, but if you look at the engagement rate, when you have somebody on the call trying to convince you, very different from text message. However, when we tried to automate this and do like almost a chatbot trying to convince you to do a flu shot, we noticed that empathy is very missing in the generative AI techniques, right? Literally an example, I know you're very sick, but other people have it in a much worse situation, right? (laughs) You should toughen up, right? And do this flu shot, right? Not exactly the easiest way to convince a patient to do a flu shot. You know what? Maybe it works for some, right? So one of the things we started measuring is empathy how much empathy does it have for the patient to convince them? Another point, and this is something that we've already talked, and this webinar is, of course, bias, coming back to this paper from 2019, if I'm not mistaken, also from science, where they show that United is using some of those algorithms, although not generative. But what we check for generative AI is also, are they producing different form of tax and communications for certain subpopulations as opposed to others and actually recommending them different treatment? Again, at this point, we're not recommending the treatment itself, but mostly like talking points and making sure that the empathy is being kept across all type of populations. Thanks, Kira. Maybe just a brief uh, comment from Shweta as well. So how do you look at this whole discussion around accuracy and challenges related to it? The development of all of this AI had created a lot of new opportunities for everybody around the world, not only in healthcare, but across a variety of industries. But it's also raised a lot of questions about the best way to build fairness, about the best way to build interpretability, privacy, safety. While this is not new, maybe I'll give a little bit of perspective of what we are doing at Google in order to address some of these questions that are being raised there is this concept, right, of a recommended practice of creating a human-centered designed approach. So everything that we want to do, it's the way actual users are going to be experiencing the system. And that's essential to assessing the way that you have the true impact of your predictions, your recommendations that Kira was talking about in the decisions. So if you, for example, consider augmentation and assistance, you want to produce a single answer that can be appropriate where there's a high probability that answer satisfies the diversity of users and use cases. But in other cases, you actually might want to, it might be optimal to suggest a few options, right? So there's this idea of creating this human-centered, human-centered design approach with any of these type of use cases. You always want to examine raw data when you can. And we also have to be very realistic. We have to understand the limitations of any data set and model. A model is always going to be trained to detect correlations that are not meant to be make causal inferences or imply that it can. So for example, uh, an, an example that we use quite often is your model can learn that people who buy basketball shoes are taller on average. But this doesn't mean that somebody, a user, somebody who buys basketball shoes are going to are going to become taller as a result. So you have to think through, right? Machine learning models have to be a reflection or are largely a reflection of the patterns of what they're the training data that they're trained on. And then the last thing I will say is test. You have to test everything. And that's that's the intention. Any of these use cases and these AI systems that are being developed today uh, to work as they're intended. 
and, and continuing to test. And even you have to continue to test and monitor after a model comes into the real world. So these are some of the plays that we, from a Google perspective, are looking at how do you uh, focus on uh, how do you focus on building that fairness, um, that safety, that privacy into all the systems and the use cases that we're talking about today? Mm -hmm. Thank you. I would like to just ask Kira for a very brief comment here around basically how do you deal with the whole continuous monitoring of algorithms, continuous monitoring that the data drift doesn't happen, that the accuracy doesn't deteriorate over time very quickly so we can move to a regulation. Of course. Very quickly, we have a set of algorithms for actually building control groups, doing uh, causal matching behind the scenes and trying to see if the algorithm is giving different scores for different populations in different scenarios. That's pretty much high level speaking. But each algorithm, before it goes into production, we have an entire system running it and making sure, for example, for a certain subpopulation, whether the scoring that we give and the ranking for preventive care is similar to other subpopulations and it represents their uh, percentage in the general population as well. In other words, if the same people have the same diseases, the actual race should not make a difference. So this is the way we're doing bias in general. We're doing the same thing for gender and others and actually making sure it's in a reasonable, viable way. From the, from the precision point of view, we're checking that the what we were trained on and the distribution of the test, those two distributions look alike. The moment they don't look alike, the model doesn't update itself and it actually gets our, we have like data science support team to make sure what's happening in the model to make sure like why the distribution change. Every time we onboard a new customer, again, we have 60 billion claims, but it's all over the world. And specifically the claims are coming in from the United States. And each state in each location has a little bit of a different characteristics. This is where we apply transfer learning. You actually try to see the population that you are applying the algorithms on is similar to certain subpopulation in your train. And the uh, algorithms are rebuilding on similar populations as opposed to the general population as well. I think we could probably spend uh, a whole hour just discussing all the challenges around data accuracy and structure. But uh, if we uh, move on with uh, regulation, Harvey, clinicians and patients welcome regulation just because they want robust and reliable AI tools and support systems. And it shouldn't be up to the end users to do all the monitoring of how reliable something is. That's what regulation is there for. So what are your thoughts on AI regulation at the moment? We saw earlier that there's quite a lot of effort that's being put into this, but it's far from uh, simple or easy. Excellent question. As a doctor, it's a double-edged sword. Obviously, number one, patient safety. Uh, I know in the United States, HIPAA, obviously we're ruled by that and that's a good safeguard. And in Europe, we got the GDPR and I'm happy for that. And so I say it's a pseudo uh, safeguards for our patients, but we need to be transparent. When a patient comes to the doctor, they need to know that AI is being used and then vice versa. When the doctor goes to work, they need to know that the hospital picked the AI and which AI and, and what's going on. And I always say we need to have a food label for our AI. So me as a doctor, I know that this particular AI has this bias, has these issues, and that way we can address it. 
And then I think uh, I feel bad sometimes for patients because they're signing these waivers, but they don't really understand what's in those waivers. And then part of those waivers is saying, hey, we are going to use AI in certain hospitals. And I want to make sure that we, no one's sitting down with the patient to say, hey, this is what's in here. This is really what it's talking about. This is the issues. And I applaud Europe for being strong with the GDPR and obviously biases and ethics. And they're pushing those issues in healthcare and saying, hey, this is what needs to change. And just as a quick anecdotal example, when Sam opened the, opened the CEO of OpenAI, went to Europe, he came back and changed some of the privacy settings in ChatGPT. And I thought, that's awesome for our for people in general. But then in healthcare, seeing that there is that bridge between uh, OpenAI and Microsoft has a heavy hand in healthcare. And so seeing how they're going to start implementing these changes, I'm on the optimist side. I'm hoping that these larger companies are going to do the right thing. And I, I think they will. I'm actually more worried about the one-off companies that may not really fully understand these bylaws and use some of these APIs to start creating products that really aren't safe or that aren't even regulated by the FDA where they should be regulated by the FDA. Rachel, since uh, Harvey mentioned Europe, maybe you're the best to comment. So the EU AI Act was already out there in 2021, and there's really heated debates uh, going on uh, this year around how can we actually make this in something more tangible and uh, obligatory for all the developers. So what are you seeing? What are you perhaps most worried about? Where do you see that... The opinions about questions are still too different. Absolutely. So there's a lot of debate about what it's really going to mean, because if you actually read the regulation, it's those applications that are seen as high risk that are going to be really heavily regulated. And I think one of the main issues as well in Europe is the data in the European health data space, because it is going to depend a lot on what we do with data and how we regulate the health data space. And that is somewhat behind, I would say, the AI Act regulations. So all of the companies I know in the health systems are watching and waiting and saying, what does this mean? What will the high-risk applications be? And there's also a major concern around capacity because as we have it at the moment with CE marking and, and regulation of medical devices, as they're seen, we have a limited capacity within Europe. So we've really got to see how we manage that capacity and how we grow that capacity. So I'd say there is a lot of people waiting, watching, a lot of dependencies, as I said, on capacity and the European health data space. But I think overall that there's some really sensible legislation that protects people. And I think that it's building trust with citizens that we go into that depth with the AI Act to make sure that data is being treated appropriately. But the thing that I like that that Harvey said, I chair something called the AI Club in Europe, which helps inform policymakers. And one of the six findings from our, our yearly report, which is just being launched, is that we need a food label for our citizens. Because if you're in Australia, the Middle East, wherever, we can go to a food label. It's pretty much the same, yeah? You can understand the carbohydrates and the fats and everything else. And what we really feel is that citizens need a, a standard frame of reference so that they can see how their data is being used, you know, what the potential impact of an AI is. And really, we uh, need to move on that globally, I think, because it's not just a European issue, but it is something certainly that the Europeans are talking about. One question that I'm just going to throw out there and uh, you can raise your hand, whoever wants to uh, go after it, is that like 
one thing that kind of struck me in the United Health story was basically the powerlessness that you have as a patient or a clinician where maybe you get the output that you don't understand and you don't have anyone that you can turn to to actually explain to you what happened. So, for example, if a a policeman gives you a ticket, you can try to reason with that policeman around whether or not maybe you you can go without that ticket in this case because you were just not paying attention for that one second. But with machines, you don't really have that leverage. And especially if there's a person following a recommendation and there's nobody concrete behind that to basically address any concerns, how do you tackle that? Do we have anyone that wants to add any comments? Rachel, go ahead. I, I think that's really a really good point. And Shweta mentioned user-centered design earlier. But I, I talk about AI, but I work a lot in risk and governance, yeah? And actually taking parallels uh, in a user-centered design way and saying, what is the analog service that we provide and how do we provide an equivalent? How do you get redress? How do you report an issue? How do you challenge something? And in a human place, you, you'd ask for the supervisor, the ward manager, whatever else. And how do we get that equivalent? So I think the risks with AI, as Harvey said earlier, are you think you're putting something really cool in place, say, from a small company or whatever else. But what you're not doing is considering the whole service design. Yeah. And the service design aspects of this really need to be considered everything from the citizen to the clinician and how the whole thing flows. Because it's not just about the AI. This is about how we reimagine healthcare. And it's the whole piece that we need to look at. So I, I think not looking on the micro uh, level, but looking at the, the redesign level and making sure all of the actors are around the table. So I, I've done AI strategies for healthcare organizations that look at how we do this. And one of the most enjoyable one was a pediatric center where I had to sit around with these wonderful young patients from eight onwards who challenged all of this. Those sorts of things are really healthy, I think. I think, Kira, you said in our uh, prep call before this panel that basically if you don't put something in the workflow, it's just uh, not going to work. Yeah, maybe a quick comment on that. And so we don't lose track of the regulation topic. A lot of complaints around regulation are going in the directions of concerns that basically this is going to stifle innovation, or that just the whole regulation processes are going to be too expensive for smaller players, and only larger organizations are going to be uh, able to afford all the legal expertise and paperwork that's required to make sure that basically you are So how do you see these uh, concerns? So when we refer to workflow, we refer to integrating into the system physicians are using when treating patients. That's the workflow that we're referring to. There is no specific regulations around the workflow. You just need, there's the financial incentives in the United States to make those workflows successful. There is other ones that are mostly around how do you get the claims and the medical records and everything in a way so you can actually get paid. So the way we're doing this in our company, we're integrating to those, let's call it financial processes, because we know that every organization needs them in order to survive. 
Of course, larger organizations are much more sophisticated as opposed to small ones, but also the small ones need to do them. We do see a lot of roll-up for many other reasons of smaller organizations into much larger, like smaller practices into much larger healthcare systems. It's not only from regulations. It's mostly about financial stability that needs to happen with all of this move from fee-for-service into value-based care. Mm-hmm. Um, Shweta, so Google is obviously a, a large company. How do you look at uh, the issue of security and uh, compliance? It, it's happening on a completely different scale in your case. Yeah, absolutely. I want to echo some of the, to build off of the comments that Harvey made and Rachel made, right? There's a difference between small organizations just trying to build one one use case or one algorithm versus uh, larger organizations where you have that kind of, that scale. So you may, I'm coming from Google Cloud and coming from Google, I believe that cloud adoption with all of the scale that we have and the longstanding uh, security paradigms, it is the optimal choice for organizations to use to support their kind of infrastructure and security piece. But it's really important to consider cloud as organizations are grappling through their digital transformations. Because I believe, right, as you're thinking through your own organization's digital transformation, it's really impossible to incorporate that without thinking about scale, without thinking about security architecture, without thinking about the resiliency of cloud. Uh, And so cloud adoption is going to become a a very necessary part of how these organizations are going to reduce their overall risk moving forward. And so one of the things that as as everybody's building their own, uh, their roadmaps, you have to think about, I'll say from our perspective, we align with and frequently we lead in some of our top mega trends or what are considered the global mega trends for this space. Thinking about the economies of scale, right? Again, coming back to that concept of these smaller organizations trying to dabble in this space. Uh, there's a shared fate. There's a flywheel of increasing trust that needs to be building in to drive that transition to that compels greater security needs and the responsibility from cloud providers like ourselves. It's going these these opportunities allow for healthy competition. You have to use cloud as a, a digital immune system, right? So every update that's happening in the cloud is informed by a threat, by a vulnerability, or by any kind of attack, and it's updated for it's updated for um, across all enterprises, right? So a, any company A can get the benefit of what that cloud provider has learned from everybody else, right? And so there's also that piece of being able to transition that um, across. And then, of course, there's going to be speed and simplicity, and then sovereignty. Meeting uh, sustainability is one of the one of the areas that's very important um, from our side. Is that the global scale plus um, the ability to to operate in localized and distributed ways can really create p- pillars of uh, of sovereignty. So, uh, of sovereignty. So, I think that as um, I can understand various apprehensions or challenges. In as organizations are thinking through how they implement and what they would like to implement, it's really important to know that uh, cloud providers and Google's practices are have been created to create and focus on security and safety while still addressing the complexity, the compliance, and the speed of change that's required. Thank you, Shweta. While we're talking about scale, one uh, question that's really been strongly addressed with different opinions in this whole AI space is also the debate between 
closed and open AI. So I want to address uh, that too. Harvey, maybe you can start. Where do you see that the discussions are going and what is going to be the best decision for the long-term positive impact on the industry? Is it possible to say that in some cases AI should be closed, in others it should be open? Where do you see that those discussions are going? Yeah, I see Sweta smiling (laughs) and I I chuckle because it's really interesting. I see it the following. Depending on what task you need will determine does this need to be open or closed. Obviously, Google and ChatGPT have done a great job with large language model. But let me give you a quick example. I'm a doctor. I'm an ER doctor. I may want to use my own data and create, say, a, a product like Llama and train it and have it where it's only in my window and only in my servers. Now, Shweta will say, hey, we have Google Enterprise. Yeah, we have a Google Enterprise or MedPalm 2 that you have access and soon we'll have Google Gemini, which I can't wait. And it's a large language model. But the point is, Depending on what my task, what I need will determine which way to go. For me personally, when people say, hey, which, what should I use? Should I use this product or that? I'm like, let's talk about what your task, what are you trying to do? My analogy is you may not need a shotgun when all you need is your fist, fist for our fight. It's very simple to me. And I think I'd love to see what the other panelists have to say. Rachel, I'm sure you, you have a comment. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. So we're seeing in Europe a whole spectrum here. And you're looking at people like Hippo.ai in Germany, who absolutely believe you need totally open AI. So open source AI that's peer reviewed with complete openness around the data it's been trained in. And then you're seeing people who believe in degrees of openness as well. And I think actually Europe will go more on the open side compared to the US. I think that's more in their DNA. And for me, it's really a matter of where on that spectrum is open important. It's important that the models are open. Is it important, as the guy at Hippo AI say, that they're regenerative, so they're a public good? That's not quite the American model. It's quite a social model. So I'm, I'm going to watch how this plays out. But I have found it really interesting studying that sort of regenerative model where people believe that these should be public goods. And certainly... Within the UK, we've discussed whether we should be creating our own civic large language model, which is an open good. I'd put it into two buckets, the open models and who owns them, and then the openness around the data and and the transparency around the data on which these models are trained. And personally, I, I think the US will probably go on more commercial tracks. You may see more open models that are owned by the public or by society or by health systems in Europe, there is a good case for things being open. And obviously people think open.ai, but it's not as open as some of the Europeans could be open. But I think it's a really good debate to watch. And there are some pros and cons. I am happy for AI to be less open if it has all the safeguards around it and assurances and third-party assurances. But sure, open could be one way of achieving that in terms of there being a, a wider open community around open goods. So yeah, it's an interesting one to watch for. Since we only have uh, five minutes uh, left, um, very briefly, each one of you, what are your expectations about the use of AI in the upcoming years? Is there any either uh, predictions or expectations that you have that you might want to share? Maybe Shweta, we can start with you. So I think that uh, 
Right now, we're even talking right in the near term. There's a lot of use cases that we see around saving clinicians on time on written tests, right? Case summaries, treatment plans, email and chat responses, analytical tasks, administrative tasks are all benefiting right now from this from this technology. I, you know, we're now quickly seeing the kind of the, the next triage of enhancing chatbots, right? Humans want greater interaction with their healthcare system, but it doesn't necessarily they mean they want increased human interaction. So how can we create a more interaction with a more seamless experience of getting the information that they want at the right time? So enhanced chatbot interactions for general health questions, for first-line triage, but really where I see things are going to be going is how this can be supporting advanced research and development. How can I, to, to support how researchers are going to identify are the future therapy candidates using different simulations and aggregated population data and using LLMs to mine large troves of research data. I think that is going to be one of the key applications that we're going to see of this technology, but in the future. Thank you. Kira, do you want to go next? So a lot of the things that we see today in the LLMs is pretty much what we covered, right? Is how do we summarize the data in the more efficient way to make physicians more efficient, right? And my biggest belief is specifically in the preventive care space, where there's a lot of buildup of relationship and obtaining data and then summarizing it to a physician to make a quick call. This is where I see a lot of the movement going forward. And the more those tools can help make this efficient, the bigger the implications are going to be on the burnout of physicians. Thanks. Harvey, you, this is like perfect for you because you're a clinician. You might have a say. Yeah, I want to say that the future of healthcare, I'm going to put these on, are multimodality. This is a product by Meta. These glasses will transition when I go outside so they become sunglasses. But the skinny is this, the future multimodality, meaning these glasses is through Llama. It's being able to take pictures of stuff. In the, if I'm out in Europe and I don't know the menu or I don't understand the sign or the parking sign, I could take a picture. It'll analyze and it'll give me the information on what exactly that is. But big picture, I see multimodality, everything that everyone has already said, the future. But I'm really big in the transition coming soon will be preventative care. Right now, we're trying to diagnose, and that's great and all, but let's prevent disease from even happening. One quick example is if I grab a cigar and I started smoking in front of everybody, it'd be like, what the heck is this doctor doing? He's smoking. Five, 10 years from now, our healthcare IQ will go up to the point where we start doing things differently because AI is telling us, hey, don't do that. And it's preventing us. My Apple Watch might be saying, hey, dude, get up and start walking because you've been sitting there all day behind your computer. But my point is preventative medicine is going to be key. And large language model can go through my DNA and look at all of the things and I can help create personalized medicine. So maybe in the future, I won't need 10 milligrams of X drug. It may be one milligram or it may be my lifestyle changes has changed so much that I'm actually preventing that disease. So I think that's going to be the future in healthcare. Thanks, Harvey. And Rachel? Yeah, so I'm going to build on what Harvey says. Pete Pronovos did some research and he found in the US there's $1.3 trillion of defects in value in healthcare, right, every year. And similarly, large amounts across the globe. We have got the ability to detect where they are, to intervene early. For me, there is a huge opportunity. Most health systems actually have enough money in them 
to serve the people if we actually direct our resources correctly and work out where we need to treat people and when we need to treat people. So I'm super excited that we can actually bend the curve on the spend, the healthcare spend that's exponential. And I think actually one thing I'm really excited in is some of the large language model work I've been doing to improve equity to make things multi-language, to make the advice applicable to people in that household or that context, right? So actually using AI to improve equity and access, I think that's going to be super exciting. And just one project in the last month that I've been involved with is doing that, making something accessible in multiple languages, multiple contexts. And for me, I think they're the really exciting horizons because they are going to make a better future for healthcare systems. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, everyone. I like the fact that we ended up on a very positive note with very with a lot of positive expectations. And with this, we're going to end the discussion for today. So thank you, everyone, for joining. As mentioned, this is going to be summarized in the newsletter and the live stream is going to be still available as a recording after today. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned.